Welcome to the Civic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, today joined as usual by the notorious Jimmy the one and only Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind DanWei.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm very, very well indeed. How are you, Kaiser? I'm, I'm great. I'm doing great, man. So uh, we're joined also by, uh, as promised, Gotti Epstein, star of HBO's The Wire, intrepid reporter for The Economist and uh, Tom Friedman's biggest fan. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> great, great to have you back, Gotti. I'm definitely a big fan of the op-ed generator. The yes. Op-ed generator. That, oh, my God. Have we not recommended that yet? That is so funny. Let's recommend it right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to recommend that, and I'm also going to recommend a really good piece in the FP, which is... Uh, By Dan Dresner. Dan right? Dresner, exactly. Uh, one of the best takedowns of one of the stupider Tom Friedman columns. That, it, was that, a, uh, it was shooting fish in a barrel. That was, that was a little too easy. Yeah. That was child's play. Anyway, as we announced last week, today we are doing our first ever listener call-in show. So uh, we asked you to contribute questions, and you guys really stepped up. I am impressed. I think all of us are impressed, yes? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm impressed. impressed. Yeah. So we asked you to, to contribute, and, uh, and we've got a whole bunch, uh, several dozen questions. And so thank you to all of you who took the time to record yourselves and email us with the audio files. And so please listen to the end of the show today. You'll find out who won Tom Miller's China's Urban Billion, a signed copy of that. Second um, prize, two copies of <laughs> Urban Billion. No, just kidding, Tom. Okay. <laughs> Good book. It, it was, wasn't it? I have. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, uh, I've read much of it. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to listen to questions and do our best to answer them. And if this works as well as I hope it will, maybe we're going to do it again next year. So let's jump right in so we can get to as many of these as possible. Our first question comes from Joy Chen, who's actually somebody I know, former deputy mayor of Los Angeles, who's been writing quite a bit on women's issues in China and is the author of a book, uh, a very fast-selling book here called Do Not Get Married Until You Are 30. Hi, everyone. This is Joy Chen. I'm interested in women in China, who we know comprise a minority of the population. Um, Business Week has reported that um, business school enrollment in the U.S. is rising because of women from China. And yet, um, if you look at the phrase, a man's place is in the world, a woman's place is in the home, a 2010 study found that 62% of men and 55% of women in China agreed with this phrase and that this represents a rise from 10 years earlier. I wonder if you feel we are now seeing a backlash against women in China. Thank you. So do you think it's a backlash, Jeremy? I, I don't know if backlash is the right word. Uh, maybe uh, backslide. Uh, when I first arrived in China in the 1990s, I felt that there was much more of the sort of Maoist ideal of women holding up half the sky and it wasn't you know considered appropriate for women just to be flower vases and uh, you know not to feel as though they were participating in the economy uh in, in a productive way um and i think that partly as a result of the increasing dis- ostentatious displays of wealth you see a lot more in china now of women willing to s- publicly go out as being a mistress being an Arnai or a Xiaosan, that that's become kind of socially acceptable, um, that uh, a, a lot of very sort of girly uh, uh, behaviors are uh, very mainstream and are considered uh, not only acceptable but to be encouraged, and that this is encouraged not only in the private sector but even sometimes in, in, in the state media. Um, but I do think that th- this is going on at the same time that you do see uh, very powerful women in business, business leaders who are women, 
who may need a certain type of personality to get there, but there doesn't seem to be a glass ceiling stopping them. Uh, in the government, not the same, but certainly in the private sector. And you also well, see I'd some say, jobs. I'd still say that. I mean, there's still, I mean, a radical uh, imbalance in terms of boardrooms in China. You don't see a lot of women on boards. And, that, that's true. But you do see these powerful female entrepreneurs yes, that completely buck all of the trends. And it's not a... You know there are many of them. It's not a it's not a small example. They're they're famous ones, but they're also female entrepreneurs. One meets in a place like Beijing, who are CEOs and leaders and founders of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's it's a curious uh, sort of coincidence. I think the other thing you see in China, which you don't see so often in the West, is certain jobs that tend to be stereotypically male in the West. And I'm thinking of engineer and bus driver seem to be still in China to be much more sort of um, ungendered. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely true. I know at my company, two, two VPs of engineering are female. I mean, that's these are not yet traditionally right. uh, female roles in, in the U.S. It's, it's fairly rare to see. Although government official, or at least senior government official, is still a, a pretty gendered role. Yeah, it's very, uh, very NPC few is less than, and, uh, less than the U.S. Congress. And, of right? course, there's the mistress problem there where even, you know, even if a you know, female, a, you know, male official wants to in good with all good intents, this is the complaint that you'll hear uh, from them, at least, is self-justifying. To have a um, mentoring relationship with a, a woman is almost impossible right, um, right. because of, of kind of perceptions and perceptions. And I think in the popular uh, media, at least, I mean, if I think of somebody like, say, Han Han, uh, or even like the tweets of a previous Seneca guest, uh, Michael Ante, about women, they often say things that in the United States would be considered politically incorrect and you know you really wouldn't just flat out say them flat out sexist and uh you know about uh a guy who's married or is in a committed relationship sort of talking as though he has a lot of girlfriends on the side a reduction of women to basically you know being arm candy Um, at the same time there's this kind of the propaganda about leftover women and sort of hurry up and get married and uh i think there is they're sort of conforming to you know, asking them to conform. Yeah, I mean, um, in, in fact, it, it comes role. sometimes from like from from from, for example, the All China Federation for Women. Yes, uh, indeed. Women. I mean, it's it's kind of As, bizarre. Uh, I think Lady Hong Fincher has uh, written about. She's the one to read on this on this stuff. She's really really terrific on this. So, I mean, if we summarize our answers, I guess we'd say I don't think it's backlash is the right word, but there has been a kind of a backslide, uh, in certain senses in China where. Traditional women's roles are, uh, do you say, reasserting themselves, or at least the the position of the woman as a, a concubine or stay-at-home mom or right. somehow subservient to the male, that notion is very much alive. And I think one area that's been particularly disappointing is is government propaganda and uh, and their role. Sure, I, mean, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. Anyway, um, great question, and thanks, I'm Jeremy. That was a really, I think, terrific answer. Let's um. Move on to our next question. Hello, my name is Jordan Dreyer. I'm living in America, and I have a English student, an ESL student from mainland China, who's told me a little bit about his high school career, and mostly about fighting and high school gang warfare. For example, he told me that one of his friends had gotten both of his hands cut off after a basketball game went bad and then he bled out and died before 
any emergency help got there. I didn't. I don't know. I guess I never thought of China like that. So, if you guys could, you know, talk about gangs, I guess work that in somehow. Okay, uh, very interesting question. I mean, it raises a, a, a very, a, a, a very serious topic here. I mean, gang violence, as we all know, in especially with middle school and, and elementary school students, is is uh, uh, reaching dreadful proportions in Beijing. The gangs have taken over, at least Dongcheng and, and Chaoyang, right? The elementary school children with AK forty sevens. You're referring. I mean, the, to. the ones, the one that he talked about, the, the the hands being cut off and the people bleeding. That's that a, happened actually just down the street from my house. It's just a usual thing. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, um, we don't even notice it living here anymore. I mean, the gangs of of middle school students running wild. They're gonna be making. The I think they're doing a movie about it, right? The right. Mar- Scorsese, the gangs of Beijing. The gangs of Beijing, right? Um, I think it's the crack cocaine that it's mainly the problem. You can't walk down the street without tripping. I mean, slipping on crack vials here. It's just uh, uh, <laughs> can, can, can we assume for a moment that the question is serious? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, all right. right, right, right. <laughs> Answer the question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All right. Should we take on its face uh, as true this, this story about the kid with his hands being cut off just for the purposes of answering the question? Sure. Um, well, there, there is a, a, gang, there is a, a gang or, or a mafia or, you know, Hei Shihui, black society problem. Sure. In China, it's an adult problem. Right, um, these are like forty-five-year-old guys uh, with big bellies. And you so. could, but you could argue that I'm sure that there are no areas of China where, because their influence in local matters, even even of governance, um, is so strong that you could imagine that that it sets uh, an example uh, in communities. One um, could imagine, but one would not find uh, sort of any empirical data. I'm just saying, theoretically. I mean, the only problem with violence in schools that really is common in China is psycho people going there with knives and attacking school children, right? right? right. I mean, that's Which really the... It is a serious problem. That right? is a serious problem. But actual gangs and bullying is another thing that you see a lot of online people uploading videos of you know, some poor school kid being bullied horribly. You see those, but I, I think yeah. You don't actual... see a lot of you don't see a lot of inner city Chicago's from the nineteen seventies. No, this is not. Uh, nor do you see China from the nineteen seventies here now. I mean, yeah. of course, the Cultural Revolution had a lot. You more. did actually have gangs yeah. beating yeah. each other up and chopping hands off. Just right, I yeah. heard a lot of terrific stories from my friends. Maybe his uh, ESL student uh, is fifty. <laughs> <laughs> so that's possible. Well, I mean, we didn't specify an age. Um, I mean, maybe he is. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. I think uh, we can we can just put this one aside. Hello, Kaiser and the inscrutable Jeremy Goldcorn at all there at uh, Seneca. Thank you for taking my question. My name is Darren from South Carolina, and I've got the bug. I want to go back to China again. And uh, I'm wondering if you can put on your prophet's hat for a second and tell me what kind of jobs in the future do you think might be most open to law wise like myself in the coming few years? Uh, do you see opportunities in media, um, advertising, public relations, and such? What kinds of work do you see opening up for foreigners in China? Uh, thank you very much. Great. Um, thanks very much for that question. I, um, Jeremy, why don't you take a crack at this one also? I would say public relations, and something we, in fact, have discussed on the show before, I think, with Will Moss. Um, I think public relations is an area that foreigners will find good careers in China for a long time to come because the Chinese education system, Chinese media system uh, does not uh, produce 
large numbers of people who are good at dealing, at the very least, with international public relations. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think that uh, personally, I, I look at the Chinese media business as a vast wasteland where I used <laughs> to see the garden of endless possibility. Uh, so I personally think that uh, in the media, there are jobs uh, difficult to come by. Not many of them. The media business generally is really, really tough. Uh, well, let me, wait, wait, let me you're about state, You're talking about state media jobs yeah, for foreigners. Any media jobs aside from foreign correspondents. Sure. I mean, but uh, 10 years ago, Economic Observer didn't have an English site. Neither did, you know. Taijing or Taixi, well, Taixing didn't exist, of course, but now they're they're hiring. And there's, some very talented and there's been English. a growth in English language, um, you know, English language kind of, uh, you know, the the going abroad media, which some of those jobs are here, right? And some are um, abroad, and some are yeah. abroad. Uh, Your but choices of course, are not, they're not necessarily great jobs, and they're not necessarily very yeah. Well-paying, but. I don't know. I mean, you know, if I was giving anyone advice, uh, making a choice, I would say media is not the. Uh, most obvious area of opportunity for a foreigner in China. I think advertising is also quite tough um, because most jobs in advertising now, uh, there's no need for foreigners, um, I don't think. There are, very, there are a very few jobs that maybe a foreigner is suitable, but I, I think the, the, the number of jobs is decreasing. I think PR is a slightly different story. That's right. Your native English language writing skills and communication skills come in very, very... I mean, they're invaluable there. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, jobs like yours, guys, I mean, uh, uh, where you're working on behalf of Chinese companies or Chinese clients uh, for international purposes, I mean, this is a growth area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's... That that's growing, but I mean, of course, come anywhere near my rung and I'm in my ladder, and I'll kick you right off. But. Right? Yeah, you, you don't <laughs> so want to mess with Kaiser. No, that's right. Um, but I mean, generally speaking, dare. I would say that uh, China is not like a great land of opportunity uh, for foreigners in terms of careers. You have to be willing to fight and make your own career, essentially here. Um, in right. most but cases. There's still that very standard sort of, I started as an English teacher, then I start freelancing for an expat magazine, then I uh, It still I happens. You have to company. work really yeah. hard and get lucky and right. all that. But it's, and, and Chinese language skills are essential. Yeah. Okay. They're essential, but on the other hand, they also don't mean that much anymore. You know, there's, I mean, foreigners who speak great Chinese are a dime a dozen, and there's like 1.3 billion people who speak really great Chinese. So, Well, they don't know. speak wonderful Chinese, all of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes just being a, a really smart and uh, you know very perceptive person is good enough. In the it is, but I mean, well, one final example. thing, if I may, uh, is that if you're interested in China, you can find a career here. If you're not interested in China, you know, I don't think one should come here for career purposes. Right, right. Okay, great. Thanks. Let's um, let's move on to the next question. This one comes from Joe. Hey, you guys. Long-time listener, first-time caller, big fan of the show. Anyways, with the recent news that China's economy in 2012 grew at its slowest pace since 1999, It's pretty clear that China watchers, such as yourselves, will soon be out of a job. As you may have also heard, the syndicated advice columnist who wrote the Dear Abby column, popular in newspapers all across America, has recently passed away. Do you see yourselves adapting to the market and changing your podcast to the advice column format to fill Dear Abby's niche? 
Incidentally, I've been randomly waking up in the middle of the night lately, and it's been difficult to fall back asleep. My friend says I should shanghua, but I don't see how standing on something hot would help me sleep better. What do you think I should do? Signed, Sleepless in Shenzhen. Well, Joe, I mean, maybe you should smoke less dope. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, not well, really. no, I, mean, I just want to really smoke joke. more if he wants to sleep. But anyway, right. so I, I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, he's some kind of a prophet here because he he's already guessed that what we're doing with Seneca that we've actually taken over um, the, the advice column in the new um, uh, the new Economist blog. Right. Sure. Right. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Did did somebody leak this information? <laughs> I, this not is, me. Not I me. I thought it was a, a state secret. Um, I'm very upset now. I'm really worried about our all of our jobs here, given on the slowing economy. Right. Listen, I, uh, Joe, <laughs> in the United States, we here are at the new center of the world, and if you've been, you know, watching your uh, kind of Republican uh, advertising materials of the last, he few seems years, like a, tar- you, a target. You audience. know that you will be ending up as a slave in a factory owned by the <laughs> Chinese, and the people sitting in the Seneca podcast are going Paid to be doing B. the journalism, public relations, and other communication uh, efforts for your future overlords. So I would uh, contemplate that. K- so, Kaiser's already predicted the future uh, in, a, in a famous column, famous amongst us, uh, where uh, people will be coming to China to work, to wash dishes and, you know, earn renminbi uh, sent back home And Shanghua does stand on hot things in hopes of, of getting a good night's sleep. You think you're going to be standing on hot things now. You're going to be uh, toiling in our underground honey caves. Kaiser trash talking. <laughs> All, All right. right. Um, but you know what? I, 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 it's an interesting uh, note that somebody's saying that China's going down the tubes. Last time I was in the United States, I, I couldn't hear anything except people complaining of American decline. So perhaps we've turned that corner now. Yeah, that's it. Which is encouraging. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we've d- drilled this one uh, or we've beaten this horse uh, or whatever you want to call it uh, into the ground. Mix as many metaphors as yeah. possible. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's I'm good go at that. Flog that dead Something metaphor. Something or oh. other. Well, we've got a couple of related questions and we're going to run them back to back here. Hi, this is Greg Pondatsang in the United States. My question is, I've noticed that Seneca doesn't seem to cover ethnic regional tensions, such as in Tibet, Xinjiang, and Inner Mongolia at all, even though they've been in the news several times in the last few years, and they you know, tend to be dramatic or sensational topics that people are interested in. It's not so much that I think you need to or should cover them, but I find them interesting, and the absence seems striking. Um, any thoughts on, on why that is? I'm also curious about how Tibet and Xinjiang tend to get talked about when expat or foreign correspondent intelligentsia types are are talking privately. Thanks. Hi, this is Sarah from Michigan. My question is, where do you see the whole issue with Tibet going? With the increasing number of self-immolations, it seems more and more unlikely that the status quo can be happily maintained. Will there be bloody revolt, the creation of some sort of Taiwan or Hong Kong-like situation, or miraculously, an independent Tibet? Feel free to go into the Xinjiang province if you so desire. 
Um, I think our questioner missed uh, the the first questioner missed uh, our two hour special episode on <laughs> Xinjiang, Tibet, and Inner Mongolia. I, I, I mean, I, admittedly, I think an hour and fifty nine minutes were redacted. We had the recommendations uh, part at the end. Um, did you? Are you actually going to play music instead of those questions? That's uh, right. We'll wait <laughs> an hour and fifty nine minutes. Um, soothing, uh, soothing tunes. Well, wait, let me let me just just say this straight out that you know if, this isn't a case of self censorship. Um, we have tackled a lot of, of of very controversial topics, and and we've had a lot of opinions that uh, guests here who have come on and said things that certainly the powers that be would be uh, not happy to hear. Uh, so I think that if if there is a suspicion on that um, part of either of our callers that we're sort of self censoring here, um, that's not the case. Uh, for me personally, I do think that these are, are very very important issues, and uh, uh, the problem is that I I've, I've I've had a lot of difficulty ever engaging in what I would consider to be a productive conversation about either topic. Um, these are incredibly polarizing, incredibly difficult. I, mean, I, I, I would lose half the listenership no matter how we came down on this thing. It would be very difficult to to um, it, we it'd set everyone just to squabbling. I mean, Jeremy, w- why don't you jump in here and save my well, sorry? I, I have complicated feelings about it. I mean, personally, <clears throat> I'm not. I don't really want to talk about these two topics because I find it quite painful for the reasons that you mentioned, that they're, they are incredibly polarizing and they are topics where my Chinese life and my Western life or my Chinese friends and my Western friends diverge in a way that they don't about any other topic That's true. and are just about willing to wring each other's throats about it. And <clears throat> the people who are interested in discussing this tend to be extremists in their uh, point of view, whichever side they're coming from. The other problem... Well, and, and, and I mean, I think that you should just add to that. I mean, the extremism manifests itself so that either side takes anyone who tries to sort of stake out a centrist position as being... I'm mean, seeing them on the other side as, as, as this is an un, unacceptable position. I mean, so I get it really, really hard from both sides. I, I, yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that's the case. But the other problem we have with Seneca is that um, people who know a lot about Xinjiang and Tibet are, if they are Westerners, generally don't live in China, and some of them can't even come here. Um, finding guests with real knowledge of these topics is not that easy. Obviously, there are journalists who are our typical guests who have spent time in Xinjiang and Tibet and know these areas that we we can talk about. But it's very difficult for us to find experts on them. So we've got we've got a journalist here. Gotti, what, what's okay there were there was another piece to the first question, uh, which was how how is Xinjiang or how are uh, Xinjiang and Tibet talked about uh, when the doors are closed among expat journalist types is I think how we phrased it. I think it, you would see it in terms of the pages of the you know the Economist and other papers like New York Times, you see it discussed much as we write about it. Sure. Um, which is you have these uh, uh, you know un- periods of unrest uh, where in which we question uh, whether government policy is really effective or maybe counterproductive. Um, certainly, the self-immolations have been getting a lot of coverage, including in The Economist. Um, I mean, Xinjiang and Mongolia, both of these places, I mean, James actually, James Miles, my, my colleague here in Beijing, um, has, uh, he just, he did a, you know, a two-pager for us on Mongolia this year that kind of summed up some of the issues with tensions and the crackdown there by, li- by little Hu, uh, Hu Chunhua, now in the Politburo. Um, 
And James, and, I should add, I mean, in 2008, when, when unrest broke out, he was in Lhasa by by And he by happened to be in Lhasa. And, uh, and the only and, foreign correspondent who was actually And, and, well, right? and, and he wrote, was, uh, wrote so well. On, I mean, wrote, wrote well, so Well, he provided, not only that, he, he was kind of the guy that people called because he was there. That's uh, right. And he provided the perspective that things were a little bit more complicated on the ground. That's right. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I think it's discussed. There's no secret to how it's discussed. I, I think... Uh, the policy, uh, government policy, it's clear that government policy is not ideal in these places. I mean, it's, it's obvious. Uh, the, the unrest there continues uh, uh, to, to crop up uh, every, nearly every year you'll hear some major incident in one of these places. Um, and then, and now frequently in Tibet, in Tibetan areas, you have this self, these horrible self-immolations going on. So frequently that we're becoming... We've got 98 uh, of them now. ...numbed right? to them. Right, um, right. And uh, it's, it's horrific. And I, I can't say I don't know where it's going. Uh, Tibet, the, the Tibet issue is so difficult, uh, and uh, it doesn't se- seem like the, the Chinese authorities. I, I know you've expressed in other. I don't know if you've expressed it here on the air, uh, but in other formats, you've talked about hopes that perhaps uh, we'll turn a new page with uh, with Xi, turn a new, turn over. Um, a new leaf or whatever you want to call Although it. I haven't really seen any any um, no, no evidence that, that. that suggests that that's going to be the case. Um, I, I've talked about you know uh, potential for reform of policies in other areas, but I haven't seen any evidence whatsoever to, to suggest that in, in terms I of right. I, minorities. I, I find it difficult to uh, be at all optimistic about uh, these problems. It seems to me that these are festering sores that are going to continue to fester, that the opposing sides, a little bit like Israel and Palestine, seem to be talking about completely different things when they don't seem to be able to have any common ground. Uh, it's extremely polarizing on people who aren't Chinese or Tibetan. Um, and the I, Chinese I, strategy of, of kind of Hanification of these re- uh, uh, regions uh, hasn't uh, changed, really. Uh, economic opportunities are still uh, still greatly favor Han Chinese in these um, in these areas, and at the same time, e- even though that may be the case, uh, resentment for what is perceived by many Han Chinese as right. as, as favorable Favoritism treatment. Of, right. yeah. So this is this is this sort of talking past each other that we're that, that we're talking about, and that's that's the reason why it, it can be so frustrating to talk about this issue is because everyone talks past one another. One of the things that that um, frustrates me enormously uh, is that um, the very well intentioned uh, people who would like to see. Uh, an increased level of of political and cultural autonomy on the part of Tibetans, the uh, activist community, both within China and abroad, I mean, I'm talking about mostly uh, NGOs in the greater China region and uh, in Dharamsala and and, and elsewhere in the world, uh, they they don't seem to be effectively engaging with the kinds of people who might actually have an impact on other Han Chinese in the way that they see the thing. There's a little more browbeating whether it's deserved or not is another question, but whether it's effective or not, I can surely say it is not. It it just polarizes people. It makes them just sort of plug their ears and and um, and and get angry. And and uh, it's it's very frustrating to me. The other thing that I would say on the other side is that I mean I think that the CCP is going to miss the Dalai Lama when he's gone because what happens next? I mean he is right now a moderating force. There's just no question about that. He is uh, helping to sort of keep a lid on what could very easily turn into very violent uh, um, anti-Chinese sentiment on the part of the Tibetan community. Right, and yet uh, their propaganda continues to... That's uh, right, to, to, to demonize them. Uh, yeah, to demonize them and to, to not really make leave any room for kind of cultivating a more 
you know, any sort of accommodation or attitude, you know, getting people ready for any potential accommodation so that doesn't look good. Okay. So we've just done, uh, I think, about as much as we can on this without, I mean... Uh, devoting a whole show to right, it. Right, devoting a whole show to it. But, I mean, I think that we should. Uh, Jeremy, what do you think? We, at some point, maybe we, if we find I the right people... I think we should if we can get the right guest. But, I, you know, this is a topic that I'd like to handle properly because it's not... Um, first of all, it's not our own area of expertise, um, which I think is a big deal. Right. I, I mean, I'm not a... I don't speak Tibetan. I speak Chinese. So... When we talk about Chinese problems, I, I've been immersed in Han culture for my entire adult life. So even if you think I don't know what I'm talking about, I at least personally feel that I've been surrounded by a certain culture for a long, long time and have the right to comment on it. Tibet and Xinjiang, I feel a lot less confident myself in talking about. I've never even been to Tibet. I have. I've spent, you know, three months on a bicycle cycling around uh, Tibet. I mean, you know, but... That was three months on a bicycle cycling around Tibet. I have not been to Tibet, as, as we know. Uh, unlike Xinjiang, it's, it's actually you need special permission to go in, right. and uh, it's been much harder since uh, 2008 um, to get in. For you poor sods on J visas. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, yeah, let's I'll promise to our listeners that at some point we will properly uh, address this. And, uh, I mean, it, it has been in something of a lacuna. Let's move on to the next question here. This one comes from William. It seems that the Chinese state media might be willing to stop using the euphemism fog for the horrible air pollution all over China. But what euphemisms will rise to take its place? Uh, for example, do you think they'll refer to tainted food as non-organic? Or maybe they'll drop the term re-education through labor and start calling it a disciplinary work-study program? What do you say? What are, what are the new euphemisms? So this is the land of euphemisms. Actually, all yeah, governments they're, spin out euphemisms. All yeah, time euphemisms by, I mean, the people spin them out more than the government does uh, in response, of course, to the government's euphemisms. So, yeah. Um, or to get things. Vacation-style therapy. Oh, vacation-style therapy is probably the winner of 2000. Uh, would yeah, it be the it winner of 2012? It should be the, the winner of should 2012. Should we nominate the best euphemism of 2012? Because, do you have a better one? Yeah, that's probably the best. Vacation-style the therapy from... Uh, of course, the, describing Wang Lijun um, <laughs> after his trip to the uh, American consulate. Uh, invited to tea is a nice euphemism. Inviting to tea is an old one. Yeah, um, but it's, it's although not it's a government not, one. Right, not a government one. That's 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 a Minjian kind of euphemism. But it's one that's based on no. It's, it is a. It's it's based on uh, you know uh, you know certainly journalists and uh, Chinese Chinese assistance to foreign journalists. Uh, that Are frequently is the, invited. You know they're invited to tea, whether or not it's tea. It is a. It is a euphemism. Um, so what are the new euphemisms down the pipeline? What, what sorts of things are we going to need to spin euphemisms euphemisms for? Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's a tough one. I mean, th there are so many already in existence. I mean, you know, harmonious society is one that may, may not have started out as a euphemism but ended up being understood by everybody in right. China as a euphemism. Right, the verb um, to harmonize. Harmonize. Yeah, harmonize. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, the Chinese dream? Is that going to be a euphemism for I something? I think so. <laughs> okay, um, sorry, we weren't able, able to prognosticate about you know what, what the ones that are coming down. We can just assure you that... that they will come down. Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, moving on to the next question. This one comes from Matt. Hey, guys, long-time fan of the show. China is obviously a huge, huge country. Um, and while it may be more homogenous than many or most, uh, there are still big, important differences 
I think, between different parts of the country in terms of their language and their culture and their food and their economic issues, um, political issues. You know, for example, uh, Guangzhou is sort of traditionally thought of as having more of a base, more of a tradition of liberal politics, partly because it's far from Beijing and partly because, well, I don't know why. Um, it's near Hong Kong, I suppose. Um, you know, Chung, uh, Sichuan is sort of uh, thought of as the while being Han. It is sort of somehow different and separate from a lot of the rest of Han China. Um, you know, it, 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 it occupies a particular place in the Chinese imagination, you might say. And the same is, could be said of, of, of Dongbei or of um, hell of Anhui, if you really want. But I'd love it if you guys could talk about regional difference in China. Um, and just maybe get a little bit uh, deeper than the standard expat, you know, Beijing is better, no, Shanghai is better, kind of thing. Let me first say, by the way, this is not just an expat thing. Beijing is better, or Shanghai is better, or would this region is better. That This is a Chinese debate. That's right. And I think the, the funniest thing about regional stereotypes that I've, I've always observed is how how they are embraced by the people being stereotyped. Right. So I mean, northerners are kind of embrace, uh, or Dongbeiren, kind of embrace being kind of uh, hard and crude and... Uh, yeah, quick-tempered. Uh, not and, so clever. Right, right. Uh, rough and macho. Yeah, straightforward. The, the Klingons of, of China, as, as I've, I've described um, them. And southern, some southerners may, may, uh, may, well, may embrace being considered shrewd and slippery. Um, good business. Uh, good good, business, good right. with money. The Shanghainese, uh, certainly, they revel in that kind of petty bourgeois culture that we all you know, accuse them of, 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 well, reveling in. And all of them, by the way, no matter where you go in China, certainly as a, as a male foreign correspondent, uh, every single place in China has the best food and the best women. Well, they do. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but let's, let's play a little game. Jeremy, I'm going to throw, th- throw a region or a province at you, and you, you, throw, you give me back the, what comes to mind. Hunan. Uh, uh, Chairman Mao, uh, hot, spicy girls and spicy food. Um, yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, TV, good TV, oh, good, okay. good pop TV. Yeah. yeah. Right. The home of the probably the, the, the most successful uh, local television. The home of Supergirls and Hunan right. Satellite. Okay. Got it. Hangzhou. Hangzhou. Um, well, once again, it's part of that sort of. Shanghai kind of area. Sure, the lower Yangtze Delta, right? Uh, uh, wealthy and uh, uh, good seafood, um, beautiful environment, the tea, the tea fields, Westlake. Beautiful women, supposedly. Beautiful women, apparently. Well, they all do. That's a given. Everyone. No, but Hangzhou and Suzhou have a special place, right? For right, right, women. right, right, right. They and some do. of them, yeah, I mean, they're, they're beautiful for different reasons, right? Yeah. The Dongbei women are supposed to be, you know, sort of tall and leggy until they, they talk, which, of course, destroys any... Although I have to say about Hangzhou that I think Hangzhou has got the most appalling food in China. Um, but, uh, <laughs> most appalling food in China, not not Anhui. <laughs> Anhui is the worst food I've ever had. Yeah, I mean it's, I it's so Anhui incredibly is pretty, salty, pretty bad. Anhui's got some bad. So name food. me one dish from Anhui you, you're aware of. Um, egg dumplings. <laughs> salted salt. I mean, egg, when I'm in a place like Anhui... Egg dumplings, salted salt. I like salted salt, when I'm, when I'm in a place like Anhui, I look for the chuan uh, symbol. I go for chuan sai uh, yeah. in places like that. I, I go mean, for chuan sai anywhere. Okay, uh, yeah, chuan, pretty much. Well, well, I'll go for chuan sai anywhere. Okay, so. Sichuan, what's the reputation? Oh, what's the, the regional... Well, you, okay, again, even more than Hunan, spicy women and spicy food. Yeah, yeah. and extremely proud of it. I mean, that's. I think they'll talk about it more there than... 
um, than anywhere. You know, um, it's it's interesting to see now how Chongqing and Sichuan have sort of diverged just in the, um, the time now nowadays. You know, Chongqing people sort of fancy themselves very industrious, where the rest of Sichuan uh, has that that they they still kind of celebrate that that. Uh, that the Chengdu attitude, that Chengdu, yeah, tea houses, <laughs> laid back and, conversation, uh, exactly, and, yeah. ear cleaning, and uh, we should say there's a little bit. We should add in a little bit for uh, ethnic minorities, regional minorities, which is this is partly based on you know for Han Chinese, it's partly based on public presentation. Just as we were talking about, um, I remember when I first went to uh, Liangshan in Sichuan uh-huh. uh, on the Sichuan Yunnan border, where I was um, talking to the, I was going to do a story about the E. Uh, the E minority, easily. the metal minority, um, and uh, the uh, a Chinese friend of mine said, "Oh, you're gonna they're, they're such nice people, uh, the E people." <laughs> she had never met. Whoa, never, never that met I have one. never heard. You know, nice and happy, and uh, I went there. Lot. <laughs> and when I, I have to say, that it was like maybe the most of all the places I've been in China, I probably ran into the most suspicion, uh, least hospitality. Uh, there, I mean, in terms of, I mean, I was covering their their society and how they lived a little bit, so it was maybe intrusive, but um, but I've been, you know, journalists are intrusive everywhere we go, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was a bit of a. That, I mean, that, what was that woman smoking? I mean, because seriously, the the reputation smoking of propaganda, the e, a little yeah, bit. The, the reputation of the E. I mean, as you, they're they're very. I, I love their gear because it's black and silver. It looks very metal, but they're also. They're kind of they're kind of hard. They're I mean, hard. They're, they're one of the last to be quote unquote liberated. Right. Um, they uh, they held they held slaves like Han Chinese as slaves up until uh, the fifties. Um, Extraordinarily violent. They have they're a caste system. Right. Um, it's uh, they're interesting people, but yeah, I wouldn't call them no, nice. Ni- ni- nice does not spring to mind. With these. What about Henan? Let's look at Henan. Okay, guys. so Henan. I mean, of course, is my uh, I have to I I pledge allegiance to uh, it's my my. The Venerable Zhong Yuan is where I have my familial roots. Um, yeah, I mean, they've got the most appalling reputation. The worst, right, right, right. The, of, of anywhere in China. Uh, Hunanese, though, unlike most other people, they do not embrace the stereotype. I mean, we, we revolt against it. It all dates back to this stupid joke about Dong Tun Rei, uh, who was a hero of the, of the War of Liberation and um, who was fooled by a Hunanese soldier into holding a, a, a bundle of explosives up under a, a machine gun nest and... and, and, and the Hunanese guy runs away, and then he he blows up. And his famous last words are "Comrades, never believe, no, never trust a Hunanese." Well, and then there's also, um, I mean, more in terms of more modern stereotype, um, but uh, Shanxi uh, certainly has a reputation amongst many as the most corrupt uh, and dirty place in China. Well, I mean, it's actually it's coal, coal province. Right, right. Uh, so, and I've always found it to be. Uh, absurdly unpleasant to go there as their a journalist. His, but historical yet, reputation great to get for stories. <laughs> their historical reputation, sort of the Armenians of China, um, that these guys are the shrewd merchants that you know that wander the country. Uh, you, you were, I mean, let me, let me finish up with Hunan though. I mean, look, right? Look, it's it's a populate. It's got a the size. It's the size of the state of Missouri, and it's got like ninety million people in it. So it's it's extraordinarily densely populated. Hundred million, I think. Hundred million, yeah. And 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 relatively poor. Right? Yeah, quite poor. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, so the reputation is for fake goods, all the counterfeit medicine you hear about, all the, the counterfeit goods, all those those guys. And, but, yeah, they're, they're industrious and hardworking, and um, I, I, I love Hunan. I mean, Hunan is, is really the essence of China in so many ways. Um, you know, some of the, 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 the greatest 
most beloved figures in modern day Beijing. For example, Jenny Liu of Jenny Liu's is from Hunan. <laughs> Your IE is probably from Hunan, bitch. Do you want to explain uh, Jenny Liu to the, uh, uh, to the, the uninitiated? Johnny, Jenny Liu's is a chain of expat grocery stores. <laughs> Exorbitantly overpriced, but but wonderfully stocked. It all circles back no, to no, privileged No, 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 you need a bit more history. Life. Jenny Liu is this... A Hunanese woman who ran a vegetable store in the diplomatic era of Salisman. Right. Right. And she she started her business because European diplomats would bring her seeds of like basil and other uh, vegetables they couldn't get in China and say, please grow, grow this, this for, for us. Me. And she gave them great service. And then she started selling imported canned items and stuff like that. And she's developed it into what is probably a multi-million dollar business. Oh, I've, I've contributed so much to her wealth over <laughs> the years. You've contributed Goddamn. millions. I, yeah. I've, I've run into you guys before. Yeah. Yes, we've, we've, we've all paid the markup. We paid have. the Jenny Lou's markup. Okay. All right. Regional differences are a whole lot of fun. Um, I think what I'll do is on, on the podcast page, I'll post a little poem that I, I wrote at one point, a little piece of doggerel about regional stereotypes. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. I've got two questions. Uh, one is, what's your the song you always pick when you go to karaoke? And the other is, what's your bargaining technique when you go to somewhere like the silk market, if you do? Okay, thanks. That's uh, Paul from Paul in Edinburgh. Paul, I've got to say, I never go to Silk Market. And the reason is this. It's not like 10 years ago. If you want a nice, cheap, high-quality item of clothing, I would recommend you go to a nice store in the United States or, or maybe Britain where you'll probably get it for not that much more than you pay in Silk Street and it'll be the real thing. That would be my recommendation, that you stay as far away from Silk Street as possible. <laughs> Go to the source, man. You know, I mean, the the, the pifashishang at, at the zoo. At, at the, the zoo, zoo, right. right. That's, that's where all that shit comes from anyway. So might as well just go there and bring a Chinese person with you and hide. Either <laughs> do that strategy. or, I mean, really, the the only secret to bargaining is don't what don't want whatever you're going to buy. Just make sure you don't actually want it and walk away as soon as it's any a cent above the price you're willing to pay. Bargaining technique, whatever. I mean, yeah, everyone whatever. Knows, right? Don't so, go to Silk Street. Don't, don't go there, right? Well, what about the what, what song do you rock at the karaoke, Gotti? Uh, I don't know. Well, obviously, my heart will go on. Um, uh, no, I. Which is, <laughs> I think that would be the number one karaoke song in in Asia, um, and not Hotel California. But uh, no, I do uh, probably I, a couple of different songs. Let's see, uh, they're all bad uh, as done by me. Uh, my favorite group growing up was the Who. Um, oh, so yeah. it's often a Who song, like Behind Blue Eyes, for instance. Nice. Um, or maybe throwing a little Blondie there, like Ave Maria. Oh, yeah. nice, 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 nice. Gotti? I mean, <laughs> Jeremy? Yeah. Well, insulting. I mean, being pretty much functionally tone deaf, uh, you know, I try and stay off the karaoke stage. Uh, if I'm forced onto it, uh, my uh, surefire crowd pleaser is Deng Li Jun, Yu Liang, Dai Biao, Wu Xin. Oh, Jesus uh, Christ. You and every other goddamn <laughs> ally. No, I'm, I'm ashamed to know you now. I'm, I'm just ashamed. Okay. Good, good question. Best question so far. Yeah. The karaoke question. <laughs> Great question. So I got to hear, hear Gotti doing the who at some point. You no, know you don't. You don't, you don't want to hear that. Okay, next one. Hey, guys. My name is Aaron, and I'm from California. Um, I currently live in Beijing. I have an easy question about Chinese politics. A couple of weeks ago, you had Mark Leonard on the show, who gave a great rundown of the landscape of political ideology in China. I need the dumbed-down version of that, if possible. 
in the U.S., you know, we have liberals on the left and conservatives on the right, with Democrats and Republicans distributed respectively. How does it work in China? I've heard many references to the same kind of linear spectrum, but I always get the vocabulary mixed up. So, are conservatives on the left? Would liberals be, like, capitalist-minded people? Where do progressives and activists fall, like Liu Xiaobo or Ai Weiwei? Or are civilians not allowed to hold an official position in this political spectrum? Thanks for clearing it up. I think we can do that fairly simply. Um, generally, what in America you might call progressives uh, or liberals you'd probably call in China rightists. Right. So if you think the government is a left-wing government, the conservatives are lefties, um, and people who want to change the status quo and are progressive tend to be called rightists. Right, so the dumbed-down version is just look in the mirror, your left is their right, your right. That's right, right. leftists are conservative, and this is something that we run into a little trouble when we're writing for a foreign, for a Western audience. I mean, we, we use the term leftists, um, and we have to kind of be careful to make sure that it's clear that they're conservatives um, and, you know, and vice versa. Right. So now let's, let's, let's look at America and, and assume that there isn't – I mean you meet all the time people who will call themselves, say, libertarians. Where do they fit on that spectrum? Or you'll meet people who are, say, uh, will describe themselves as socially conservative but, uh, but fiscally liberal. Okay, rarer, rarer to meet those people. But but generally, the distribution is you know you can think of it as four quadrants. You can think of an economic uh, axis where you can people people can be either say small government or big government, and a social axis where they can say you know the the government should play an active role in your in legislating morality versus one where you know people are more uh, sort of the government should play no role in 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 legislating uh, personal behavior. Uh, and so you, you, get, you get sort of four quadrants out of that. Think of China as having those, but then another axis, another axis that sort of runs through it. So you end up with eight. And, um, and actually, you do find a distribution that's, that's, that's kind of puzzling to some people. You can find people who are, say, uh, economic conservatives. That is to say, uh, in, China, in the Chinese context, that means they're um, – when I say conservative, I'm talking about Chinese conservative, which means you know they, they believe in state-owned enterprises rather than just the, the giving full free reign to the public sector. But they're more focused on inequality, as in addressing that. That's right. Um, that's right. Yet it, they also want the government more in your life. Exactly. Uh, but but right. And then and then Sorry. morally, I mean, uh, sort of in, in terms of 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 of, of uh, political. So an economic axis, and then say a political axis, where you'll you'll also find Chinese people who, of course, are. Um, a longer range politically from believing very much in um, social stability and accepting a curb on personal liberties in the service of social stability and others who, you know, are much more sort of libertarian in, in, uh, in that. Now, usually these two tend to correspond. Right. I mean, it, it's they certainly cluster along these two. Uh, a third axis that I would say would, would be in, in terms of foreign policy. You can be uh, very hawkish and still hold what we would consider as Americans liberal attitudes about economics, you know, I favor the, the private sector over the public, and uh, I'm hawkish, but I favor a lot of personal liberties. This actually does exist. They're, they're probably rare in China, but they actually do exist. And oddly, if anything, uh, from signals that we've seen, you might describe some of the people, some of the leading public intellectuals who are in the Xi Jinping camp as, as exactly in this odd quadrant or octant. Although not necessarily Xi Jinping himself, not, not, I'm not, I'm not, um, no. but um, yeah, I think and, and some, for some maybe nationalism is a is a convenient uh, sort of way to sort of uh, sell themselves to 
um, to the other kind of political persuasion. Right. I mean, we're not second guessing here. Well, right. We're just saying just just from what right. what, what they say. So yeah, um, maybe that's that's a pretty easy way to think of it, uh, and yeah, I think Mark Leonard in his his book he lays this out pretty clearly. I and mean, actually, we'll put names to these different positions. Right. I mean, this came up a lot with when we're talking about comparing the Chongqing model and the Guangdong model, right. uh, Bo Xilai and Wang Yang, uh, because it wasn't as simple. It wasn't a straight contrast. However, Wang Yang did seem less focused on inequality and more on uh, private enterprise. Um, Bo Xilai uh, conversed, conversed to that and more of a leftist in general. However, you know, but there, it wasn't as simple as that because, uh, you know, we've seen that some coverage out of Guangdong that Wang Yang actually had some other uh, policies that weren't so rightist um, and were a bit more assertive than we might have expected, especially in the area of the media. For instance. And, and finally, I think just, you know, when it comes to dumbing stuff like this down, this only so far you can go. I mean, the, what you call liberal in, in the United States is not what everybody else in the world calls liberal. I mean, what one calls liberal in Australia or uh, South Africa is much closer to a Republican Party position. Um, and right. liberal is very More useful is perhaps progressive. I progressive, mean, I think, it, is But even better. then you get into fall into trouble, right? Boshilai, while conservative, might be considered by many of his supporters to be uh, progressive in his politics in Chongqing. So now that we've absolutely befuddled you, um, yeah. let's try to yeah, so I think, guys, just forget about it. <laughs> we've got, I think we've got time you for... You can't dumb it down. Yeah. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> we've got time for just one more question here. Uh, this one comes from Kevin. One thing I've noticed living abroad in Thailand, and it seems to be the case for you guys as well, at least as long as I've been listening to you, which is for, I don't know, six or seven, eight months now, is that... Uh, uh, Local opinion and uh, Western opinion, Western expat opinion, the, these kinds of things are almost always have air between them. So, you know, uh, there'll be Western opinion expressed publicly. There'll be local opinion expressed publicly. You know, the, the two sides will quote each other publicly, but there's almost a, I don't know how to say it, but it's almost like a, there's a, a bit of a deference to, to one another. And, and, and it's almost is if people don't want to sit down at a table together publicly and and express the ideas together and have that more organic interplay that occurs. And I'm curious if, if that's something you found, and is there a reason that you, at least as long as I can remember, haven't added a, a local voice here and there to the podcast that would provide a more homegrown take on whatever you're discussing that week? It seems to me it would be interesting if you found the right person. Is it is it difficult to find that person? Is it just not the tone of the show that you want to take? Or, or what are your thoughts on the topic? I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Jeremy, I mean, I think both of us have, have agonized over this a lot. We've, we've always tried to bring on uh, more people who are, uh, are from China. Uh, we have. Okay, first, in our defense, we have brought on uh, a number of Chinese guests. I mean, most prominently people like Li Xin, uh, who is the English editor of Caixin, and she's been on at least three times. Uh, but no, there haven't been a great number. But I mean, the the main difficulty with that is, I think, uh, English language, um, that there aren't huge numbers of people who uh, will contribute really meaningfully to our discussions and speak good enough English. There are some. Uh, a lot of the ones whose English is good enough are, you know, we can't get on the show for whatever uh, yeah, reason. They're too good. <laughs> right. They might be a bit busy. Uh there, uh, you know, I've dealt with this. There, I would, I would dispute the premise a little bit uh, because 
uh, I mean, having participated in many conferences, like for Forbes or for The Economist uh, or other people's conferences, um, we the pan- there's a lot of work done to make sure the panels have a balance of mainland voices and and foreign voices, um, and some of them work out really well. Uh, I just was on. Uh, we just did the Economist China Summit, um, and we had a great you know we had a great conference with the mix, um, and uh, uh, you know with you know, Chen Gang, who you know former Southern Weekend uh, deputy editor, and Hong Huang. Um, uh, were on the panel with a couple of, uh, you know, foreign voices as well. But it's always these same people, right? Yeah, it, right. There is a limited, there's a sort of, I mean, Chen Gang was speaking in Chinese, I should say. We had simultaneous translation, so that's a benefit. Right, we don't have um, that. But, uh, right, there is a limit based on English language. And then I, but I've also been on other panels at times where it was dreadful because it's not just a language issue, but it's also a, uh, maybe how, how free do they feel to speak if, if the conference is on Chinese soil? Um, this is a problem that comes up with academia. Uh, how, free, how free do they feel to speak uh, about you know, their own views and what are, are they going to present just uh, talking points, scripted talking points? And this, I have to say, is a problem we've actually had with guests that we've tried to invite, who uh, Chinese guests who've declined because they feel the topic is too sensitive. Right. Um, I think that's changing a little bit. I think Weibo, among other things, is making a lot of Chinese people much less, less afraid paranoid about what they say in public. Yep. But we have had that problem here. Yeah. Hopefully, less and less as time goes on. But, but your point's taken. I mean, we we would we we would be very very happy if we could find I mean, we could broaden our range of guests to include more sort of authentically mainland Chinese voices. Uh, that would be great. Um, and yeah, I think it's something we can work on, right, Jeremy? Yes. So I mean, we're going to skip recommendations this week, um, just in the interest of time, because we all have to run off to an event right now. Uh, and I, we haven't got through all of the questions we have to. No, 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 not even uh, half uh, of them. I mean, there were so many more. Um, our, our winner, I want to announce, uh, was somebody whose question we didn't get to. It's David Strope, who is a doctoral student at the University of Oklahoma. So congratulations, David. If you would just reach out to us with an email and uh, give us your mailing address, we will mail you a copy of Tom Miller's book, China's Urban Billion. An autographed copy, no less. So uh, congratulations on that. And thanks for your question. Uh, Gotti, man. Thanks. Thanks for coming in. It was great to be here. It was a lot of fun. Jeremy, thanks, man. Thank you, guys. We will uh, see you guys again next week on the Podcast. Take care.